Welcome to Everyday Drinking, presented by the Eat, Drink, Dine Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jason Wilson. Okay, so, well, this is an episode about rum. Rum good, rum bad, rum ugly, you know? And so we're just going to dive right in the deep end here with the uh, rum agricole from Martinique. This is uh, a Blanc, an unaged rum agricole from Rum Clement. And it's one of my favorite rums. And how do you, it looks like you're struggling a little bit. It's very high proof. So I'm sorry. I'm just getting like flashbacks to my cousin Katrina's wedding when I tried to keep up with all of the Haitians drinking tequila. And let's just say it didn't go over well. It's giving me tequila vibes, but it's not. It's rum. Right. Because this is you're getting the greenness because this is uh, fresh pressed sugar cane. So this is like the essence of rum in a way that this rum agricole is always Sugarcane, fresh pressed sugarcane juice. It's not molasses. It's not the byproduct, and then it's distilled. So you're getting that green, that wild, that wild edge. So like, yeah, boom, boom. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you know, I think that's interesting. I mean, rum is something that I think most people don't really equate with like very complex spirits. Like rum is like what? It's like pirates and parties, like Captain Morgan and and uh, Bacardi, and you know those kind of daiquiris and yes these things that just like i don't know it's a it's a little problematic though <laughs> like yeah okay so right and we're gonna get we're gonna we're gonna get dive pretty deep into rum today it's gonna you know we're gonna go there today definitely i know i kind of shaded this rum at the beginning but it's honestly very nice it's like just like yeah. smooth it just like goes down easy well it's just like anything you if you've never had it before it's odd. It's weird. Like most people haven't had rum like this, even though, I mean, rum agricole has been around. It's, you know, it's a French protected AOC actually, you know, in, oh. in, in Martinique. Right. So, okay. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's around and people love it, but it's not really that widespread. You know, it's ma- ma- mostly rum geeks, right? Why am I not surprised that you love <laughs> your rum geek? I learned something new about my co-host every episode, guys. <laughs> So today, you know, rum, rum is, rum is a lot of things. Rum is not just pirates and parties. Like it's not just, you know, your Bacardi, strawberry daiquiri, you know, uh, yeah, I'm throwing my Captain Morgan, you know, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) I'm throwing my Jack Sparrow fantasy out the window with this episode. Exactly. Cause rum, you know, rum, there are issues with rum. Rum is problematic and we're going to go there today in a deep way. And so this next rum I'm pouring you actually is, uh, okay, so it's from Nicaragua. And so this is a rum that is probably very problematic, but tell me why I love it. Right. So it's when I, you know, when I first started traveling and writing and doing all this stuff, when I was in my, you know, when you early were in your, like big Hemingway, <laughs> yeah, exactly, my <laughs> early Hemingway phase, you know, like, uh, so what we're having now is Florida Cana from Nicaragua. And so, uh, it's the seven year. And this is like, has always been a standard of mine. When I was younger, I traveled a lot in Central America, wrote a lot about Central America. It's really the first kind of travel writing and drinks writing I was doing. And this was the rum and you could get the rum. When I traveled around there, you would go, you would order this, it'd be $4 a bottle and they would just bring the bottle to the table with a bucket of ice and some limes and some coke and some tonic and just say you know go to it you know by the end of the night you'd be sitting around with a bunch of friends and there'd be like you know four bottles bob, you know just bobbing like, in the ice you yeah know, this yeah. is giving me like a little bit of like philly special so you know i would bring it home and then eventually you know it became widespread and you know so it, this was always a rum but but you know a few a few years ago there started coming out at, at how the workers are being treated and and the workers were you know who were cutting the sugar cane in in this part of Nicaragua were coming down with this mysterious illness, this mysterious kidney illness. And it really became an issue that, that the workers weren't being taken care of. A lot of bartenders just boycotted the brand for years, right? And so you know, it became, I mean, it's still, we're tasting it now. It's good. And, you know, they say that things have been improved. But I don't like, know. I haven't, I haven't been down, you know, I mean. But some are people- we talking about like improved as in like McDonald's being like, we're now going to pay our workers $11 an hour instead of seven. Or are we talking like, oh, and now we're giving you health insurance. Right. Or like, or or how about (laughs) this? Like, we're just giving you where there's water stations during the day because I mean, cutting sugarcane is like running a half marathon every day. I mean, it's a, it's a grueling, grueling. You're burning the calories. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, so, I mean, these, and these are the kind of issues that we get into with rum that we don't get into with cognac, scotch, even bourbon, you know, I mean, like, what are 
we okay. dealing with here? We're dealing with a country like Nicaragua. These are places where, let's just say it what it is. I mean, these are poor countries, you know, and, and the workers can be exploited very easily. Because, you I mean, you have a big company, Florida Kanye. The owner is very close to, I mean, I got to be honest, the corrupt president of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, who used to be a hero during the Sandinista era, but, you know, not to get too deep. But is this, but this is where we are. We're always getting deep into politics with rum. I mean, rum and politics are intertwined and... That's the terroir discussion when it comes to rum has to involve politics. And race. And race. Okay. So then as I'm pouring, we're going to get into it. As we're pouring this this 15-year-old rum barbancourt from Haiti, I think this has some special, so I think this resonates a little bit with you. Yes, because for all of our listeners, I am Haitian by association. <laughs> what I mean by that is I've been blessed enough that every woman in my family has married a Haitian or a Trini. So we just have like these Caribbean vibes, like running strong. And I've seen this bottle and this brand pop up many a time at a family dinner. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. And, and this, this is the 15. So this is the, the top of it. So we're like getting there. Right. Okay. We're going to have Delphine, who is on the podcast, who's the CEO of Run Barbacore. Which I'm very excited about because I have... Yeah, Delphine Gardere. And, and she, um, there was a little like, bit of a... Her life is like a whole telenovela. It's yeah, fine. Just yeah, call it what like, it is. Like, it was like a little dynasty issue. There was a lot of family drama there. Yeah. But, uh, so now, but, you know, now she's in charge of the company, young. Mm-hmm. We love a young, strong, female visionary lead, okay? Right, exactly. So we're going to talk to her. Okay. All right. And, uh, you know, Haiti... A lot of good rum in Haiti. This is another rum that like I have warm associations with because I traveled a lot in Haiti in the late 90s when I was very young, you know. It, it, we, uh, I'm just trying to imagine like baby Jason in Haiti. <laughs> like, like being like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> being like, salut. <laughs> so I think for me, just why this feels a little bit complicated coming from like both ends of the spectrum, I've like watched you know, Haitian family members and enjoy Barbancourt in a way that is just like very calm and very chill and very down to earth, almost kind of like drinks of my people in a way. Um, But then just being in situations of like fine dining, I've also watched, you know, older white businessmen enjoy this drink in a way that's like, well, I want to look authentic. And I guess for me, why I'm just like, oh, I'm like, do you even know what authentic means? Like if we're going to like really get into the nitty gritty. Yeah. Well, this is a problem, though. This is, I mean, this is, and I, I mean, I've written about this before. I mean, every people want the capital A authentic, right? But what does that mean? It's a very, it's from a very privileged position, right? Because there was this um, product that came from Haiti, this rum, it was an unaged rum called Clarin um, that was brought into the country a few years ago. And there was some issues. You can read more about it at everydaydrinking.com. There's a whole thing about it. But like, so, but, you know, there was... But it appealed the, – the marketing of it was appealing to like, oh, my God, the sugar cane's brought on the back of a donkey, and it's brought to this homemade still. And, you know, there's almost – it's almost like um, poverty porn in a way, right? You know, it's like, you know, oh, well, this is authentic because a guy in a homemade still made it who hand-cut the sugar cane and brought it on the back of an animal or something. And, yeah, and, and that's kind of like, how it was marketed. And it's so, like, like, yeah, but you, then, like, was that guy making, like, $2 a day? Yeah. Well, I mean, right. Because, I mean, you know, most people in Haiti make less than $4 a day. So, right. I mean, so exactly. So, I mean, like, and, and you know, what was, what's the, yeah. I mean, it's just so, a bit, I mean, I'm at a, issues, bit, of a, right? I'm yeah, at yeah. a bit of a crossroads because your billing realm is a luxury product. Right. And so, but so, then the authentic part of this is just not correlating. Right. And, and, and exactly. Cause, because, because, and that's true. And, and so, but I think like this is an issue that rum is going to have to grapple with as it, as it, becomes a luxury product and not just you know what you pour in a mojito or something right you're gonna have to like um rum should be a luxury product i mean it's it's amazing right and it's very complex and um you know a a couple of years ago i went to the uh, what was billed as the rum tasting of the century and rum ages right (laughs) rum ages rum ages longer than a lot of things do like we and they opened up at this tasting so there was a rum from 1780 from Barbados and, you know, there was a whisper at the table like, well, did this, 
was this rum associated with the slave trade? Fucking Obviously. yeah, of course it was. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> from Barbados in 1780, right? And like, they, we're like four years past, like, America signing the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> like, what the fuck do you think? Right, yeah. Exactly. Like, yes, very much so. We all learned this in high school. Like, you know, the triangle, rum, molasses, slaves. We all learned this, right? You know, it's like, yeah. And, and, and so this stash of rum had been found at this earl's house in England. And even, you know, it's a historic property. And even on the website of the historic property, they acknowledged they held slaves in Barbados. So, duh. Yeah, obviously. This, right. You know, like, so anyway. This sounds like a really good Netflix movie. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Netflix, if you're listening, we're down to write the script. So I think, you know, there's two things here. One is I think I want to, you know, I would love to advocate for rum as a luxury spirit. It is absolutely one of my favorites. And in the highest end, aged rums are just some of the best spirits in the world. But we have there's a to, legacy here, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And we just have to acknowledge it. Like we can't turn away from that. And so that's what this episode is about. So for our first segment, I wanted to focus on Equiano Rum, which was launched last year, and it's uh, billed as the world's first African-Caribbean blended rum. It's named for Olaudo uh, Equiano, uh, an ab- abolitionist and a writer who was kidnapped and sold into the slave trade when he was 11, and he bought his freedom in 1766 at 21. And uh, this is a black-owned business, and the four founders have experienced adversity hurdles hard times in their own lives and careers and they now collectively donate five percent of the company's profits along with two euros of every bottle purchased from the website to quote ground level freedom and equality projects which is great and so i wanted to talk with um, an old friend of mine clyde davis who's involved with equiano now And I first met Clyde when he had his own importing company, Team Spirits, and they were bringing um, uh, Chairman's Reserve, uh, well-known St. Lucian rum, into the U.S. And, you know, he faced a lot of hurdles as well as, uh, you know, having a black-owned importing business at that time, you know, just a decade ago. And so uh, we get into all this, and this is our conversation. I'm Clyde Davis Jr. I'm the Vice President of U.S. Sales for Equiano Rum. I'm also the owner of 75 Proof Beverage Solutions. Welcome to the podcast, Clyde. Hey, it's good to be here. I was like, I'm potting on a Friday or whatever day this is. Yeah, what are we? We have a little Equiano Rum in our glasses right now. Yes, definitely. It's, it's time for Equiano Rum. Every time it's time for Equiano Rum. And Clyde and I go way back in the, yeah. in the spirits game. Yeah, it, it's funny because I, I've seen this, like, when I first met you, you were doing the the drink column in the Washington Post. Right. And I was uh, a younger entrepreneur, and you were, I guess you're a younger journalist. <laughs> Much. So, <laughs> and so what, what's great is about is to see kind of this evolution and journey um, for, for both of us, because it's funny how life, you know, changes, because, you know, people think, oh, wow, you got this great rum company, or you're working for this huge paper. They feel like that's the the accumulation of everything. Like that's the that's the end all be all when it's just a step in the process of of how we're living. That's you know right. I mean? It's so true. It's so true. So I mean, I mean, maybe that's a good place to start. I mean, talk about you know what you were doing at that time is you had an importing business, right? Yeah, yeah. I had an importing business. Me and um, David Jones, we had the Team Spirits Imports. We imported Chairman's Reserve. We actually created Chairman's Reserve Spiced. Imported Cashews Peanut Rum Cream. We started. At the end, we started kind of collecting brands because we were getting so good at craft stuff that people were, were just sending us, you know, say, hey, can you represent this brand, this brand? And it got a little hectic for a second. So when we closed the company in 2016, when St. Lucia Distillers got bought, it was a good time for us to kind of reset, you know what I mean, to collect our little pennies and, you know, lick our wounds and uh, revamp. But it was a, a great, great run for Team Spirits. And it's so funny because... Now there's this such a a big emphasis on black owned spirits. Yeah. Now to see everybody like, oh, it's gotta be black owned, black owned. I was like, wait a minute, where were you guys 10 years ago? Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> when we had this great rum and it was me with the face of it. They're like, ah, oh, no, not and, and it's <laughs> it's actually pretty funny now because 
there are people that I have meetings with now as the head of this US sales for this company that literally would not talk to me when we first had our company. You know what I mean? People that are like, oh yeah, I remember. I mean, literally have conversations with people who had me waiting for five, six hours to talk to them. And now they're like returning my emails and being responsive. And it's just funny how things have changed so drastically in 10 years. I don't know if it's, you know I mean? Part of it is my experience. Part of it is that now that people are expecting to see different faces in the room, whereas 10, 12 years ago, no one expected a black owned rum. You guys are what? Is it, is it, do you guys know any rappers? This is literally what people would ask me. You know, <laughs> you guys know any rappers? You know any athletes? Did you get any athlete money? And 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 so now they they's like, oh no, we need to see diverse faces and hear diverse voices. It's awesome in that regard. But I definitely I, I understand how like Satchel Page felt. You know what I mean? When he saw Jackie Robinson being like, I'm the first. You know, da, 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 da. And you're like, dude, I was striking you out all the time. Like, <laughs> and now you're now you're the the and. Part of that is recognizing that being the first black to do something or the first black company or liquor company is not really progress for black people, but it's progress on the mindsets of the white peoples and the powers that be. You know what I mean? That's the person, because we are already, because in 2009, I was already capable of doing what, having these meetings that I'm having now. It just took those people the time to get their mind right and to remove whatever figments of imagination that that help keep racism in, in place in their mind, removing those things for me to have opportunity. It wasn't me because I was already ready. And that's how I look at like Jackie Robinson. We celebrate him, yes, because he endured a lot, but it's not exciting to be the first black anything because the reason why we're the, not the first, why you're the first black anything is because you weren't underrepresented, you were purposely excluded. You know what I mean? And, and, that's, and those words matter. It's exciting now to see a lot of brands and you know and, and people hearing black stories and even to have, you know, with Equiano and Uncle Neris named after black people, you know what I mean? Not not themselves, you know what I mean? As a great thing. In the rum business, I mean your experience I mean, the rum business, I always say this. I mean, rum is not like other spirits. Rum's got a lot of cultural baggage yeah. that other, you know, and, and I mean, and so maybe I mean, that yeah, was an interesting place to kind of be in the spirits business. As, yeah, because rum, yeah. rum is very much built on the blood of, of slaves because rum, sugar, slaves are all traded together. You know what I mean? Um, even when you think about the story of Oda Equiano, who's the name, who our rum is named after, you know, he sold rum he was making from pineapples in order to get his freedom. You know what I mean? That that The concept of rum is... Rum is is very much connected to the human trafficking and also the movement of Africans through the diaspora of the Western Hemisphere from Africa. So rum is a part of that. And that's why it's very important for Black people to, to kind of celebrate rum, because this is part of our, our history. This is part of our tradition. And we need to take ownership of it because we're the ones that were distilling it. We're the ones cutting the sugar cane. We're the ones, and even to this day, that's what we're doing. You know what I mean? We may not be the ones that profit the most off of it, but now his opportunity where, you know, this being a Black-owned company with my company as well, um, where we can have some ownership in a legacy that we built ourselves. And I mean, at the time that 10 years ago, rum was about parties and pirates, right? I mean, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. It's funny. We're always, the same thing that we're doing now for Equiano is the same fight that I was fighting for Chairman's Reserve is to make treat rum with a sort of luxury, right? And make sure that is a, a luxury item. What happened in the early 2000s is tequila took that leap from being kind of just like you take shots at the bar when you go to Tijuana, you know what I mean? And you end up going to a donkey show and that's, and that's <laughs> yeah. That's what people tequila. Yeah. And, but right. then rebranded that experience, you know, to maybe a more upscale experience. So now people are looking at single barrel tequilas and, you know, reposados. And we're always fighting that uphill battle for rum in that same way, in that same regard to give it respect. But I think because it's so connected to brown and black people, that's been very hard to, to build that legacy of luxury. Even though if you go to any of these islands, they have the Four Seasons, they have the W. So luxury is part of what the Caribbean sells. But when it comes to Caribbean exports, 
people look at as coffee, bananas, you know, those type of things where, where we have a lot more. And right. People didn't take rum as seriously as yeah. other spirits. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. No, because, because they thought it was, it was so connected to that slave trade and those things. People kind of left it as, you know, what it is they allow Captain Morgan to be the kind of the party thing. And then Bacardi with uh, being Cuban and then going to Puerto Rico, they've kept like this family idea of legacy going on. But overall, the rum category in general was kind of looked upon like it was nothing. It wasn't a, it wasn't a value. Um, but we do know that a lot of cocktails, a lot of the cocktail culture uses rum. You know what I mean? And yeah. and so and it's always been I was talking to a friend earlier today saying, what do you think about the rum business? So, well, at least the rum business, you only got to beat like five people. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, there's only like five people to beat. Whereas in tequila or vodka, you're talking about hundreds of brands. Hundreds celebrities, of brands. you know, yeah. Yeah, we don't have a celebrity doing a rum just yet. Yeah, yeah, so, but yeah. Celebrity, I think you have to get it. You have to actually, at, when you get a certain level of fame, you have to start like a tequila. I think that's the thing now. That's the law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Law. It's the law. So it's part of your SAG agreement <laughs> as an actor. Talk, let's talk a little about Equiano, the, the new project you're involved okay. with here. And, and so it's listed as a on the label as an African and Caribbean, Caribbean rum. An African yeah. and Caribbean rum. Yeah. So, yeah. So it starts in uh, Gray's Distillery in Mauritius, uh, where that rum is made off of uh, a column still. Now tell tell everybody where Mauritius is because I think people don't know oh, that. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's the island off of East Africa. So it's yeah. an African island. Right. Um it's funny because if people are like more Madagascar, no, no, Mauritius. Like <laughs> no, 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 no. Maldives. Okay, hold on. We're getting <laughs> so it starts at Grace Distillery and Mar and Grace Distillers in Mauritius. Um yeah, Mauritius. And then um that rum is aged in cognac barrels. And then that rum is then transported to Barbados and then Richard blends it with Bajan rum that was aged in bourbon barrels. So it's a blend of both African and Caribbean rum. That which makes it very unique. And the reason why that's important is because that's actually the trajectory of Oda Equiano. He was an African, born in Africa. He was then enslaved and then brought to uh, the Caribbean and then spending most of his life between the Caribbean, America, and the UK, um, which is very unique um, for me when Ian was telling me the story about Oladá going from Africa to Barbados and then to America and the UK. That was really resonated with me because that's the same path um, that my family took in the African diaspora. You know what I mean? So, you know, enslaved Africans. My great-great-grandfather was an immigrant from Barbados. He came to um, Virginia and where he met my great, great grandmother and decided oh. he was going to stay in Virginia instead of going to New York. So, so part of my, my, my maternal side started in was both African slaves from Africa and then a free Bajan man who came to, um, the Northern neck of Virginia. Yeah. Wow. And so when you, when you say Ian and Richard, this is Ian Burrell and Richard yeah, Ian, Ian Seal, Burrell. right? And just so the, I mean, these are big names in the yeah, rum yeah. business, and, right? So, saying, so who's, who's involved I'm, with this? Yeah. I'm saying their first names as if everybody's like, we're on a rum podcast and everybody knows exactly. <laughs> um, but Ian Burrell, he is. I mean, this is the nerdy podcast, so maybe not that nerdy, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so we have to go to everyday rum drinking would be. <laughs> you know those names. Um, but Ian Burrell, he's known as the global rum ambassador. He's ambassador for the whole category. He's actually the only ambassador to win a spirited award not connected to a brand. You know what I mean? So, which is it's phenomenal. He runs the Rum Fest in the UK, which is the world's longest running, biggest rum convention. And then Richard Seal owns and runs Foursquare Distillery. And for a lot of people, that is the paramount of, of independent rum makers. You know what I mean? Richard's a very hard-nosed guy as far as traditional rum, no sugar added, no spice added, no color added. Um, he's a very much a traditionalist. I think, I guess you would call that a rum conservative, I guess. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But it's very, very <laughs> okay. I mean, we've already brought politics into rum, so what's the difference, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so he's uh, so he's definitely a monumental figure in uh, rum. But sometimes controversial guy, you know, oh, right? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. There's no, he doesn't lack for controversy. And and I, I can't really speak to every controversy that he's yeah, in yeah. because it doesn't matter. Not that it doesn't matter, but because it's not, it's not my thing, but he is a great producer of rum. I've been wanting to, to work with him 
And so this project with Ian on board, and when they came to recruit me, and I saw that Richard was actually helping and doing the blending of this product, I was like, this is a no-brainer because it's the first time I know of that independent brand is going out with that kind of strength and name as far as uh, Ian Burrell and and uh, Richard Seal, because we literally can sell the first, you know, couple thousand cases to people who are just geek out on rum, you know what I mean? And and don't have to explain anything to them. You just say Richard Seal and Ian, this is their project. They're like, sign me sign up. Sign me up, yeah. I mean, they, <laughs> and, and then the great part about it's the easiest it, job you ever had. It is, it is one of the easiest jobs I ever had, you know what I mean? Besides, <laughs> like, you know, going to parties with girls and getting paid to, <laughs> you know what I mean, to do that. But that... That was the most fun I had at a job. I love it because I'm back in, because I have so many rum connects and I haven't done anything in rum and going on five years. So it felt good to be back into that space and to talk that talk. Cause that's how I kind of, you know, came up in the spirits industry was through rum. I mean, as someone who spent a lot of time tasting rum and talking about rum and selling it, I mean, what makes a good rum for someone that's like, you know, maybe they're new to it. Maybe yeah. they've only had it like in a yeah, yeah. pina colada or whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say, throw out everything you know about rum to begin with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because people will tell me their Captain Morgan stories and they tell me these Bacardi stories and, and it, listen, I get it. That may not have been a great experience. And I have a lot of respect from both of those companies. But some people's experience are tainted because when they're trying rum, they're not as sophisticated as drinkers as they are kind of now. You know what I mean? Like when somebody first gets to drinking, you know, bourbons and whiskeys, bourbons and scotches, their palate is usually a little bit more refined because they're not, there's not $15 scotch and $15 bourbons that they're getting as a college student, but they are be able to get that big sort of tequila and rum. So so there's that. So with me, the thing that I want most with rum is I want it to have like kind of like a sweetness up front, but then the finish dry. That dry finish, because a lot of times people think about rums being overly sweet. They get this thing back in the back of their neck, you know what I mean? Uh, and it's just like, it's too cloying. So I want something that's sweet up front, but then dries out the, the back because then I'll continue to drink it. And I also know that most of the rum cocktails add sugar or sweetener to it. So whether that's a mojito, a daiquiri. So I need a drier rum to give that cocktail balance or the, or the cocktail would be too sweet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's what I look for in a, in a, a good rum is that it'd be kind of, and that it has some versatility. I should be able to make almost every whiskey cocktail with a good rum. And so, you know, I love making the gronies with this old fashions, Manhattans, it all, it all works. There's nothing better than a rum Manhattan. I mean, that's great. That's the business. Since this is an audio thing, Clyde just took a very big sip of the yeah. rum. <laughs> I'm trying to be in character. Like, that, was a, that was a really weird pause. That's what I look for in, in rum. And Agriano provides that. And because of uh, Mauritius and Barbados, you know, it's much warmer. So the aging is a little different, a little Caribbean aging. So it ages faster um, than in Ireland or Scotland or Kentucky or any other, other places that are you know, distilling and aging spirits in barrels. I think that is something for like real people, real in the spirits bubble that the aging of rum is a little bit of a, yeah, you know, a little bit of magical thinking. You get yeah, these age, age statements on, on rum barrels. And it's like, come on, in 20 years, there would be no rum in the barrel yeah, if it was yeah. in the tropics, you know? Yeah. You know, there's two problems with that. One is that there is, there's no governing body for rum. So everybody can do whatever they want. And two, most people, most of the aficionados or the blenders, they're blending to a blend, not to an age. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they don't really worry about age statement because they're blending to a, a particular taste. One of the things when we were working on chairmans, I was like, man, people keep wanting age statement, age statements. He's like, oh, some years is six years, some years is four years, but it's going to taste the same every time. And, and, and that was, so we never had age statements. But America is so big on numbers that they like the higher the number, the better it has to be, which I think is completely, you know, trash. Because when I was selling scotch, people were like, oh, let me get your oldest. I was like, but the oldest may not be the best. Now it's the right. most the 16-year might be better than the 30, you know? Yeah. yeah. I was selling a scotch where the 12-year-old was my favorite. And people wanted to hear that had the 15 and the 18. I was like, but the 12 is drinks so good. But that's also because I knew 
what flavors and stuff that I wanted. So I, it didn't matter to me the age. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a, a very unique thing about rum is that because there's no government body, people can put whatever number on the thing and, and on, on a bottle. And the problem with the U S consumer, we see a number and we get, Oh, it must be better. Oh, that's 23 years. You know what I mean? Or that's, you know, not even doing the math and saying, hi, these guys put down that much rum during the global recession. You know what I mean? Like, like that really happened. Like, <laughs> yeah. so, so after September 11th, somebody said, you know what? Let's put down 500 barrels of rum. You know what I mean? Like, like that, that, that didn't happen in 2002. You know what I mean? Right. So right. That's, what, that's what people, you know, they just go automatically and see a number and go like, oh yeah, of course that makes sense. So do you, do you think there'll ever be a governing body of rum? Well, there's some there's some loose government bodies, right? Um, and it's just whether or not the distillers decide to be a part of it because there's a Rusba, um, rest, I think it's West Indian Rum Producers Association. Mm-hmm. There's stuff like that, but they, you don't have to be a part of that. You know what I mean? No one has to be a part of that. But there's no government bodies because there's no terror and there's no government because most of these countries were under uh, English control. A UK domination over until the last 30 years. You know what I mean? One of the things that I talk about Prince Philip and the fact that over 60 countries were got their independence since he was the married to Queen Elizabeth. And so that shows you how recent colonialism is. You know what I mean? This is not a a relic. The person who just died literally oversaw all these countries getting their independence. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? Which yeah. is themed because we talk about getting independent from colonization as if it was hi- history. No, these are some of these countries got their independence in the sixties, the seventies. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. They're like in season seven of Saint Lucia. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. What is your favorite rum cocktail? Well, you know me, I actually love drinking rum neat, but I, I, I do, I do like a classic daiquiri or a Hemingway. You know, what I mean, if I have to get a cocktail, but I. But because I do so much in spirits, I actually just like product neat. You know what I mean? Like, it's no, like, just just keep it easy. Put it in a glass. If it's good, it's good. And also, because I can monitor how much I'm drinking. You know what I mean? Versus, if I'm getting a mojito or a daiquiri. Next thing you know, you know, because they're putting so much sugar in it, you know, and I'm getting a headache from the sugar. They didn't put enough rum in it. It just, it's just too many uh, variables. So I usually just drink it neat or at, at home. I do the most profound thing, but just pour everything on Diet Coke. So, which is, uh, <laughs> that's something that, you know, we'll just say that with your viewers and my close friends. So they go like, that's disgusting. But I actually like the taste of Diet Coke. All right, well, secrets revealed today. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, you don't want me making cocktails at the crib. You, want, you just want to get it neat. Okay, so Clyde may not be one for cocktails, but my next guest Israel Melendez Ayala is a true master of the mojito. And so here's our conversation. So today we're going to be talking about uh, tropical cocktails, daiquiri, pina colada, and of course the mojito. My guest today is uh, Israel Melendez Ayala. He's uh, a a bartender and historian and anthropologist uh, based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And he's been a bartender at cool places like uh, La Factoria. And he was a finalist for the 2019 world-class bartending competition. But uh, as in his role as a historian and anthropologist, he recently published an excellent essay on the muddled history of the mojito in Whetstone, which is uh, a cool magazine that's dedicated to food origins and culture. So uh, welcome, Israel, to Everyday Drinking. Hi, Jason. <laughs> so, yeah, let's start uh, with the process of making a mojito, this cocktail that everybody uh, get crazy anywhere in the world. Yes. Making a mojito begins with pouring the simple syrup. I mean, if you don't, it's much better to have the simple syrup because it's equal parts water and sugar. It's, just, it's a better way to control the, the sweetness. I mean, if you want to do it with raw sugar, go ahead. But I mean, simple syrup, pouring the simple syrup in a highball, model the mean inside the in the glass. But I mean, before that, just give some hits to the to the leaves so the leaves start to to unleash those aromas of mintiness and then you model inside the glass with the with the simple syrup just gentle don't do something hard like some bartenders do because if you do that you're going to break the mint and we don't want that so then you then then together when you put all that the modeling with the mint 
Then you add the rum, the lime, and the ice, and the club soda, and you stir a little, uh, just very gentle. Stir, not shake, stir. If you check the mean, you're going to kill that aroma of oh, the yeah. mean. So never, never shake a mojito, right? Yeah, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been in many bars. I see bartenders putting everything in a team, and they did close the team, and they check check the Boston shaker and it's like, ah, uh, what you have done? Because, I mean, when you do that, you're just killing the aroma and the taste of the mint. So then it's what it's going to taste like, a, 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 yeah, rum sour, just rum, lime juice, and simple syrup. <laughs> so you kill the essence of the, of the mint. <laughs> and that's because the, the mint's a disaster after that, after you shake it, right? The, the mint's yeah. just like, uh, yeah. And goes in inside the straw. That's why people's like, ah, don't please don't, don't make me a mojito without mint. And it's like, <laughs> is it there such a thing? A, yeah. <laughs> no, it happens sometimes. Because I'm like, I want a mojito with no mint. And it's like, if it doesn't have a mint, it's a daiquiri. So what do you want? Do you you don't want is the mint in in your teeth? So and then I explain to the customer, and then they understand. But yeah, it's a build cocktail. I mean, it's it's a very old cocktail. So we were getting into then. So in Calle San Sebastián, which is the main street in all San Juan, you can see all the bars mm-hmm. here in all San Juan. In the corner between San Sebastián and San Jose, you have this emblematic bar, La Factoria, which I worked before. And I was okay. working in a bar called Vino, which Vino means wine and the Spanish. So when all the bars are packed, Vino gets so busy as well. And... Many of the tourists and locals that come to this to the 16th century town of San Juan, walking through the the, the cobblestones, go to Factoria, goes to take pictures just because they want to see where was uh, uh, the video Despacito film. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, and especially on Saturday nights before the pandemic of work, of course, you can see people blocking the street, walking around with mojitos in their hand. I mean, you have a bar in front of La Factoria, which is sell these big uh, plastic cups of mojito for five bucks. But when I was working <laughs> in Factoria, the Saturdays since, since 10 p.m., that was a, a ritual. You can I can have like an order, just one order of 10 mojitos for a whole group of friends or bachelor oh, yeah. party. <laughs> and it's like, Jesus. So after you finish that line of 10 mojitos, People look like, oh, you do mojitos. So there comes another 10 mojitos, then 20 mojitos. And that goes and goes and goes until we close the bar sometimes. And it's funny <laughs> because it's like you are coming to one of the 50 tall bars. We have our our own cocktail menu, but still you want a mojito. And it's like, okay. I mean, that's the well, why are people on vacation, right? I mean, is that why? I mean, it's just it's it's people are on vacation. They want a mojito. Is that the story? Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's the story. It's like I'm on vacation in Puerto Rico. It's a tropical island. I want a mojito. It's like that's the picture. And even in, in, in tourist commercials, that's the first thing they show you. Someone in a beach, the air is blowing, the water touches your, your ankle and you're drinking a mojito. Or a pina colada with umbrella. That's the class. <laughs> pina colada with umbrella. So in, in your essay, you know, you were suggesting that the mojito is probably one of the most requested drinks in the world. I mean, not just yeah. on your island, right? I mean, why do you think that is? It's, I mean, it's certainly got to be the best known tropical drink in the world. Why? I mean, the, the mojito, uh, I mean, the base it's a classic base. I mean, you have uh, the citrus, which is the acidity. You have the rum. You have the sugar. So it balances. So automatically, the acidity of the lime, it helps to refresh. And this, the, the simple syrup, of course, but give the sweetness. And you want the kick of the of the rum. Then you add the club soda. It's an extra. And the mint is another extra. So... It's 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 a easy cocktail. It's not a it's not a it's not a complex cocktail like a purple plane, for example, or a tiki cocktail like the mai tai. Yeah. <laughs> it's something simple. Looks fancy because when you see that mint uh, leaves coming out from the from the from the glass and the bubbles from the club soda, it's like ooh, it's very uh, 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 yeah, it's very attractive. Very attractive. And as I said, I mean, it's a very refreshing cocktail and easy and automatic. So that's why I think it's very popular anywhere in the world. I mean, when I was living in Spain doing my master's degree, 
I remember to going to all the bars and people was asking for mojitos. And it's like, uh, it's too cold outside. It's like, doesn't match with the weather. Did you Same. Want I mean, you're always, they're always drinking mojitos in Italy as well, everywhere. I mean, it's just like, they always, yeah. Are, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. doing my research, I found that Diageo was making pre-batch of mojitos for draft because the demand of mojito in London uh. is so crazy that, of course, bartenders are getting crazy as well because, I mean, heating the leaves. Not only the list with each uh, with the simple syrup, then you add the lime juice and the rum. I mean, it's a process. And when you have 10 mojitos and another 10 mojitos, it's very stressful and very, I mean, it, it keeps you dragging and dragging orders because you want to get, you just finish and get over this, that order of, of, of mojito. This, it's crazy. You know, this might be a kind of a geeky question, but I was just thinking like, okay, so you're saying like it's a, a daiquiri as a, mo, as a mojito without the mint. But I'm wondering, like, the mint julep is kind of like a mojito with whiskey, right? I mean, yeah, they must have is. the same. Which came first? Nah, the mojito for sure came <laughs> first. The mint julep, yeah, yeah. For, for sure, the mint julep was a yeah. copy of that. I mean, okay, yeah, that's I, what I figured. I, I, yeah. I never done a research of the history of the mint and the mint julep, but just talking, probably also they come from because I know the mint julep was a boom in the prohibition time. Also, the mojito in the United States was a boom in the prohibition time, especially mm -hmm. because most of the tourists that were flying to La Habana because they yeah, can't yeah. avoid or the rules from the prohibition in the United States. So they go to La Habana. It was way cheaper. And you and, and, and you have because these tropical cocktails that you couldn't have in, in the United States, of course. For First of all, again, for the prohibition era. And secondly... In, in the time before the prohibition, you didn't have a bartender to do those cocktails in a bar. And, and before yeah. the pandemic, you have a bartender doing all fashions. But yeah, no wonder. So, I mean, sugar, maybe. I mean, no wonder someone from who's working and dealing with sugar and in, in, in that time in Cuba or in the United States, was like, mm -hmm. mm, I like bourbon. What? Let me see if I do the same thing. With a mojito, with a with a bourbon, how, let's see how it tastes. I mean, without yeah. without the the club soda, and yeah, it's super refreshing. It's so good. It's so good. So, would you say that it was? I mean, you mentioned this kind of in the essay. I mean, was it people like Ernest Hemingway and and you know people that were going sort of in the mid twentieth century, early and mid twentieth century to Havana that made the mojito popular, right? I mean, a lot of these drinks, yeah. the daiquiri, the mojito, and they're the ones that kind of brought it back to the U.S. and then people started drinking it and it got really popular. I know that like, supposedly like the daiquiri was JFK's favorite cocktail. So, I mean, like pretty much by the mid-century, you know, it was like these cocktails were mainstream, you know, in the U.S. Yeah, it was because of that. I mean, and remember, in that time, it's not like today that we have YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> which is way more easier to know what is happening in China, what is happening in in yeah in, yeah uh, in London, in Paris, in Canada, here in Puerto Rico, Mexico. But in that time, you only have access by the newspapers, the radio, and someone has to go and tell you. So and also you you start to see what you have uh, uh, closest closest to you. So the United States in that time. Remember that after the Spanish-American War in 1898, the United States started to invest a lot in sugar mm -hmm. in the Caribbean. So you have the 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 Platt uh, Amendment in Cuba, and here in Puerto Rico, you start to have the agrarian agrarian laws, which they were exploding so much the sugar plantations in the island. That's the boom of sugar in Puerto Rico and Cuba in that time. That's what I tell you. No wonder if the Minjulev it comes from American who went to Cuba. I was like, mm, I taste that in Cuba. I have bourbon in my house because maybe it was <laughs> yeah. very, I mean, yeah. we're talking again about the 20s. It's, it's not the, the, the same way now to have rum like in those times. Even before or after the prohibition era, it was very hard to have those, uh, those spirits. You don't have someone distilling the spirits in, in the United States, even their history of rum in the East Coast, in Boston, Rhode Island, and even New York. But still, the rum that you want is the one from the Caribbean because it tastes different. They have a better technique, etc. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, we have to make a claw before we continue. And that, uh, for a long time in the United States, the rum was seen as, uh, as, as the spirit of the poor people. Yeah, for, yeah. Well, I mean, for, for decades. I yeah. mean, even be, even before it was the drink for the slaves. 
Yeah. They were in the sugar plantation and they're drinking drinking the the rum. So as you got deeper into the history of this, I mean, I guess you know, when we when we I mean all drinks history is sort of shaky history, I think, you know, it's sort of like it's a drinks history is sort of a history told by drunks to begin with, right? But like <laughs> you, you got right. <laughs> but you yeah. got into I mean, I mean at least the mojito, the history of the mojito, when you re- see it in, in, you know, an American cocktail book or something, it's always based in this sort of kind of colonialist or imperialist myth, isn't it? It's not, I mean, it goes back a lot further than the 20th century, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. And unfortunately, I mean, like in the article of Weddestone, you go to magazines like Eater or the website of Gifford and other ones, and they put you, ah, oh, these, the, the cocktail made by C. Francis Drake. And it's like, how do you link that with St. Francis Day? Because he wrote it and he drank this. Now he's the discoverer and the or some of them they put like he created. Oh, that. is that so right? So so take us through that history. So I mean that's the stated history, right? That Sir Francis Drake what discovered the mojito? Discovered yeah, the mojito. and it, yeah, yeah. and it's like how you 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 dare to do that? But I mean, of course, we know it's a <laughs> colonial Anglo-Saxon mentality. If yeah. someone from the West was the first one to write it down. Uh, the war discovered. It's like the, <laughs> uh, I was. I was telling to uh, um, to a friend of mine that we were talking about these colonial topics, and it's like the example of the Himalayas. Uh, the war discovered Himalayas when this Norwegian guy went over there to the Himalayas, and it's like everybody forget the picture of the Sherpa walking with him, which is a guy who was <laughs> going back and forth all the time because that's his life. So don't tell me that you dis- the, the word discover because a Westerner discovered Himalaya. The Himalaya had been there all the time. I mean, and you have been have people going up and down because I mean that's their environment. That's that's their, their and it's the same thing with the mojitos. Like oh, I discovered that. It's like I mean, dude, and and who cool, <laughs> they were they were distilling rum already, dealing with lime, sugar, and mint as well. So it's like, d- d- don't tell me that, that you discover this thing. For over 150 years, Rum Barbancourt has been one of the iconic rums in the world, and it's certainly one of the iconic products of Haiti. Made from pure sugarcane juice, its eight-year is a standard in the industry, its 15-year is delicious. So I'm really excited to have uh, spoken with Delphine Gardere, who is the fifth generation to run the distillery. Um, She's young, she's 36 years old, Um, but her father, Thierry Gardere, was a staple in the spirits industry. He managed the company for almost three decades until he passed away in 2017. Now, there was uh, like a really significant family drama going on here. There was a, like a, you know, almost like a dynasty kind of issue um, between Delphine, her mother, her uncle. There was a big court battle. But in the end, Delphine uh, grabbed control of the company and now she runs it. And, uh, you know, she really seems like uh, a visionary leader who's going to bring not just rum barbancourt but rum into the 21st century and this is our conversation today on the podcast i want to welcome from uh, port-au-prince i want to welcome uh, delphine gardere uh, the ceo of rum barbancourt to everyday drinking good morning delphine how's the weather in haiti good morning jason everything is great um, super sunny here that's nice. Kind of jealous. It's a little still not quite spring here up in the Northeast. I'm excited about this because the first the first time I was introduced to Rum Barbancourt was in the in the late 90s. Actually, I, I was on a reporting trip to Haiti and uh, it was uh, it was memorable. Like it was like a formative, you know, I was a lot younger and it was a formative trip for me in, in my travels. Um, and, and the rum was very much a part of the experience. But I guess in the late 90s, you were probably still very young, maybe, you know, in your teens, you, you had, you were a long way from taking over the company. I, and, uh, and I guess your father was running the distillery at that time. Can you talk a little bit about like what it was like to grow up in the rum business? Well, to be honest, the family company was never um, something that was forced upon me. It was really something that I was interested in after um, I lived in Paris and I had a presentation actually from L'Oreal um, at school. 
and I um, discovered that I really loved consumer goods. So here I did a 180 degree and moved my career from being in investment banking to back to consumer goods. What was it like to come? I mean, you had, so you had been living away from Haiti for a number of years at that point. I mean, as, yes. Yeah. What was it like to come home? Well, I left in 1990. No, no. Yeah. 1999. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. And I came <laughs> back in 2017. Okay. So um, I did my high school abroad and then I did university abroad and I worked for over 10 years abroad as well. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting because, you know, now I have grown out, I grew out of the family business and I'm able to see how things work outside of it and bring, you know, some positive changes, I hope, to the business. And um, I don't know, I think I liked, I, it was great having a childhood in Haiti, but I think it's also great to have a part, especially when you're a teen, to grow a bit more independently, have more freedom when you're away um, from the family business and also away because Haiti is a very small um, circle. So you are the fifth generation of your family to, to run the the business and, but you are the second woman to, to sort of steer the ship. And and in fact, your middle name is an homage to an ancestor. I don't know, a great grandmother or uh, is it? Great aunt. Great aunt. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the, the family history? Um, I guess it goes back to 1862. Yes. So um, the company was founded by Dupre Barbocourt in 1862. When he passed away, he was married to Natalie, my aunt, and they didn't have kids together. They had no kids. So she took care of the business at his death with um, my great-grandfather, whose name was Paul, and they ran the business together for almost 10, 20 years. And then once, when my great-grandfather died, my grandfather took over and decided that he would make the company a lot bigger. And he had a vision of industrializing the company. So he brought it to the equivalent of the Great Plains of Haiti, you know, built that business that was basically at the back of the family house at the time and brought it to the Great Plains. And then when my grandfather died in the 1990s, early 1990s, my father took over. So, I mean, that's quite a sweep of history, like tumultuous history there. I mean, there's lots of things have happened, happened in Haiti during yes, that time. There was coups, exactly. embargoes, natural disasters. Occupation. You know, and, yeah. <laughs> occupation. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, and, and in fact, I think I, I had read that when you were just graduating from business school was in 2010, when the terrible earthquake in Haiti happened. I mean, can, I mean, how is the family always, I mean, it's quite a feat to have survived that this long with so much going on, you know, especially, you know, the kind of devastating events that have happened. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think living in Haiti and growing up, you know, in Haiti period or having ties with Haiti, you learn a lot about resilience. And I think this is something that my father really, you know, embodied was um, his able to just push through, push through hardship um, because he had gone through the embargo early 90s and then the earthquake um, when I was in grad school. It's about seeing all your life work and gone, you know, in a shift in just one minute. So I think I had a lot, a lot of um, admiration for his ability to just bounce, well, bounce back. Yeah. And I'm sure it affected, I mean, the hundreds of people that work for you as well. I mean, in, in, in many ways. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Um, You know, there were some people who became homeless. We had to house them in tents. We have a foundation. So we use the land of the foundation to set up, um, you know, an area for them to be temporarily sheltered, giving them water, security, and things like that, because it was such a state of emergency that we just had to find solutions for everyone. So talk a little bit about the the rum. Um, so I mean, people who know rum, I mean, people who listen to this podcast know rum. Um, so, I mean, and they know that when it's spelled with an H, it's usually rum agricole. Um, and I mean, so... Are all the expressions of Barbancourt true agricole? I mean, is, or are, are some or is everything, you know, that uh, made from fresh pressed sugarcane juice rather than molasses? Or is, is there 
some differing with the bot with each bottling is it different no all of our rums are made from sugarcane juice okay all of them yeah what's the kind of the reasoning behind that i mean as far as like you know is it what kind of profile does it give what you know maybe for people that don't know what it, what's the what's the process what's the you know so we work with about 3000 farmers locally mm-hmm. that bring us the sugarcane and um we mill it once it's milled we use the juice um we ferment it and then we distill. So that's basically the basis for our production process. And then the differences are really in the aging. So the three star, five star, and the 15 are, you know, aged differently because we use mainly French oak. Mainly French oak. So when I have, when I see the, the age statement on the, on the label and this, I think this is especially a weird thing with rum. Like sometimes is that, is that the youngest aged? Is that the average age? Is that the, you know, what, what does the age statement actually mean in a, on, on your rums? The way we age. Um, so we use French oak and we use a combination of what do you call that? We move okay. and blend basically. Are you rotating so, the barrel? Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, so that's one. Okay. And secondly, yeah, the age take, and we use a method combined with Solera. So then, what we're what the consumer would see is that the, like this this is the average. It's like it's an average age of the rum. Then I mean, there might be older, there might be younger. So the sugarcane you say is coming from three thousand, a network of three thousand growers, sugarcane growers. And so are these, you know, I mean, are these small family, you know, producers, or I mean, what 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 is what is Where's the sugarcane kind of coming from? So these are mainly families that have plots mm-hmm. and that use them for um, sugarcane harvesting. And they live in the region around our area because the sugarcane needs to be processed within 24, 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And if you know Haiti's infrastructure, there's not really a lot of room to go and harvest. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, up north or so it has to be from our area. So it's a lot of work um, educating as well the farmers and getting them to understand that the younger generation, especially that, cons- you know, construction and pr- basically protecting the environment mm-hmm. for sugarcane harvesting to continue. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously sourcing any ingredient these days is a is a hot topic you know where does it come from who's growing it you know who's working in the fields you know and so that was what i'm i'm you know is curious about like is it are these like huge sugarcane plantations or are these you know is this more yeah exactly so that um, 80 yeah. percent of our sugarcane is harvested um with local farmers well i mean with with so many employees and so many, with a network this big in a place like haiti i mean there must be I mean, there's serious corporate responsibility that that's happening. I mean, I, I, and I, and I, I assume you're taking that seriously, you know, I mean, I, that's a, it's just sort of like par for the course, I think. Right. Yes, absolutely. That's definitely part of the course. I mean, not only, so we work with 3000 farm, farmers, but we also have 500 employees. So one of the things we did recently, a survey with competition on salaries and everything and for instance, some of our employees are 20% paid, 20% paid more than the rest of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really something that is important to us. We have a foundation also that helps for the families of the employees, you know, to get, give them access to healthcare as well. And we yep. really have a corporate culture of um, being a family. I mean, I think that that's, it is something that's very specific to rum and maybe not some other spirits like, you know, cognac or scotch. Um, I mean, with rum, you inevitably, you just take two steps and you're deep into issues of colonialism and, and slavery and race. And, you know, it's like, it's like rum has a lot more baggage as a product, uh, you know, uh, than some of these other premium spirits do. It, it's true. Um, but I think, you know, Haiti is very particular because we've been independent since 80, 1804. Mm-hmm. And we take great pride in that. So a lot of the families that are actually that stayed 
afterwards or families that were not booted out, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's why we've never had any plantations or anything like that. And, you know, when we look at other countries where they have to automate, for instance, sugarcane cutting and everything like that, it really becomes, when you consider things like that here, it really becomes actually a CSR discussion. The more you automate, the less people you have working for you and the less families you're feeding. So it's really something that challenges you in your decision making and that you have you're constantly aware of and that you have to think about and what about you know being you, you you've taken over the company and i think in your mid 30s late 30s i don't uh, um and mid, mid. mid <laughs> sorry <laughs> of course uh, young, <laughs> early 30s whatever um but what is it, you know, what's it been like to sort of navigate the rum business as a woman? I mean, it's a kind of a macho, there's a sort of a, a, a machismo kind of, uh, you know, vibe to the rum business, you know, pirates and all that stuff, you know, it's, <laughs> what, what's the, it's, yeah. It's interesting because the first couple of times that I ever went to events with my father, I really, it really felt heavy, like the male dominated industry and everything. Um, but I feel like the last couple of years, women have been slowly entering the industry. Obviously, we're not at par yet, but yeah. it just feels like it's changing a bit. Mm -hmm. And women have a different way of seeing things. And I've seen that working with my father. I mean, sadly, not long enough, but you definitely don't approach products in the same way you don't um like taste sense of smell it's just all very different do you imagine that the the, the rum with the like taste profile will you know will evolve you know or or do you think are these this kind of thing like you know it's always going to be the five stars always going to taste the same as it has for a hundred years or you know do you see new products i mean you know where's the kind of the 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 taste profile going to go? I don't think we'll change the taste profile, let's say, massively. We'll probably improve it. Yeah. If that makes sense. But for that, we also need to get consumer feedback, which we're working on to see, you know, um, what they'd like to see. But if it's very different, then we might, if the, what they want, what the where the consumer's at is very different then we might have to think about doing a new product launch. We're also looking at other product launches, which would be very in line with our DNA, either finishes or, you know, maybe we need to do overproof rum and things like that. So there's been a uh, some buzz in, you know, in like cocktail spirits and cocktail nerd circles in the U.S. about Clarine, where, you know, there's been some products that have come in, you know, this unaged, very rustic Haitian rum. I mean, you work with this kind of broad network. Is that is that a, an area that uh, that 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 you could see Barbancourt getting involved with? Like, kind of. Um, you know, I always think of like Clarine is almost like it's like the mezcal of rum, right? You know, in a little bit, and and that and and mezcal is so popular. You know, um, I'm just wondering if that's if that's a direction you see it going. It's an interesting question because the Haitian consumer does not view barbacoa as a clearing. Yeah, okay. And they view barbacoa as more of a aspirational product. Okay. So it would be very difficult for us to associate the barbacoa name to a clearing. Okay, interesting. interesting. But it doesn't mean that we would not look into doing one, if that makes sense. I mean, where do you see the, the, the rum business going? I mean, you know, internationally i guess i mean you're selling you know to the us europe wherever you know where like where do you see it moving in the next 5 or 10 years i feel that there's uh, been an appetite for very sweet rums and flavored rums and that trend i'm sure is not going to you know subside overnight mm -hmm. but i feel that it's brought in new customers and new consumers to that category to the rum category, which is really interesting. And that 
these customers might grow into wanting different products with a different with different palettes and might want to expand their taste buds. I have to I have to ask this this I mean uh, and we're not. We don't have to get too deep into it, but I mean, I, I grew up in a I, I grew up in a family business that had a a, a major squabble between siblings and 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 uh, the, the next generation, and so I'm you know I, I know that there's been a lot of family there was some family drama and there was some lawsuits and things. I mean, you know, we don't without getting. I mean, we could talk about specifics if you want to, but I just I'm curious, like, what's that like to be in the middle of a kind of you know a, a feud like that over a family business like Barbancore? To be honest, it's uh, it's really sad because yeah. you realize that the history of the company it just could vanish in you know a year with a lawsuit like that and um, just for personal interest. And I think that's the saddest part. I think for me, it's made me really grow, really grow not only as a person but also as a professional. But I can. Honestly, all I can say is that it was really a generational conflict and different aspirations, and that's okay. I think it, you know it's okay in families to have different aspirations, to have different needs, and but you have to part ways amicably. I mean, moving on from that, I mean, there is some. I mean, one of the first tasks you must have had is sort of healing the company to move forward. Like, I mean, right? Is it? Yeah. Yes. And that's, I mean, when I talk about change management, it's the healing process that mm-hmm. we have to do for the employees. Um, because it was really the first thing was to really make them feel safe. Mm-hmm. A lot of them thought the company was going to disappear or that they would get fired or, yeah, you know, so I think it was really, really important for them to show that we're here, we're investing in them. You know, because they were seeing the litigation, they would see the, how do you call it, the person coming to serve, the clerk or, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd be like, well, what about us? Is no one taking, thinking about us and what's going to happen to us within this? So it was really important to show that, you know, we're here, we're not leaving and make them feel safe. So what do you see as the, as the future? I mean, of. Rum Barbacore. What do you think? Where will you be in five years? So right now we're in a, as you said, a healing phase. Um, so that's one. Um, and the next steps are premiumization, mm-hmm. expanding um, markets, reach, market reach, and also looking at product development. Anything? I can't say. We have... Um, <laughs> Um, we're expanding the team actually to mm-hmm. have two new people that okay. we're recruiting um, specifically for that. Cool. Well, uh, well, you know, I have always loved these rums, and so I'm gonna, I'm enjoying a, you know, sort of surreptitiously while you've been talking, I've been kind of nipping on the 15 <laughs> year old. So even though it's <laughs> it's morning, but you know. Yes. You, you as well? It's never, okay. It's never, <laughs> it's never too early. It's never, never too early. Too <laughs> Everyday Drinking is presented by the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Produced by Jason Wilson. Co-produced and edited by Anthony Silva. Additional contributions by Amber Janelle Brown. Special thanks to Clyde Davis, Israel Melendez Ayala, and Delphine Gardere. Music from the EP Momentos by Ages. Check out our newsletter at everydaydrinking.com. We'll talk to you next week. Cheers.